the Cliff Notes version. Logging is borked and no one can agree on how to do it. It's easy, so everyone invents it for themselves. All right. That's good. Let's, you know, that, that's, that's a wrap. A, that's a wrap. Let's post it. <laughs> that's awesome. Everybody and welcome back to the 24th episode of Ruby Rogues. Oh, Josh hates it when I say 24th. Welcome to the Josh episode. Here. I know. It, it, the real question is why is Josh not here? Because he said something about being busy, but I believe the truth is that he was drinking with GitHub last night. <laughs> anyway, episode 24. <laughs> So, not here is Josh Susser and David Brady. On our panel today, we have uh, our guest rogue, Tim Peace. Hello. Uh, Tim, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, certainly. I am a Ruby developer who fell in love with the language around 2005. And I have a little known fact, zero formal software development training. All of my education was in physics. So, there you have it. Oh, terrific. All right, we also have Avdi Grimm. Hello, my name is Avdi Grimm. You killed my process. Prepare to die. (laughs) (laughs) We also have James Edward Gray. I can't top that. Hi, everybody. (laughs) And I'm Charles Maxwood. I'm not sexy today because I'm in a hotel without my equipment. Chuck, you'll always be sexy to us. Oh, thank you. I'm not sure quite how to take that. All my Utah friends are going to shun me now. All right, so so this week we're talking about logging, and uh, Tim is a foremost expert in logging. Oh, dear. (laughs) So, Tim, why don't you go ahead and introduce us to why we are logging and maybe why we do it wrong. Okay. Do it right. Should we start off with a definition? I mean, Josh isn't here, but we can honor his non-presence. Yeah, we definitely need a definition. I mean, it's you take an axe into the woods and start cutting things down, right? Indeed. Let's all sing the Ren and Stimpy song. <laughs> it's log, it's log, it's big, it's heavy, it's wood. So, um, logging is, I was thinking about this and how I would define it, is any message of note generated by your um, application or cluster of machines or whatever. And a message of note is something that conveys meaning or has some importance to you as the developer at a future date. And these aren't things that are meant for the general consumer, but it's something to help you along the way. Uh, for example, in a production system, especially one that's running on a bunch of pre-forked unicorn workers, it is very difficult, you know, to log into that and hook up a debugger and figure out what's going wrong. Um, you rely on these messages generated by the system to figure out, oh my goodness, you know, this is this is why this is failing. It's um, they're notes to your future self to make your life easier. So, in a nutshell, that's my definition. So I, I uh, was reading all the homework Tim gave us. He, uh, he's kind of studious, and he sent us a large email. You know, these are the 500 things you'll be expected to know before you can talk to me about logging. And um, so I was reading about uh, uh, Log4j, uh, which is a logging framework in a language that shall not be named. Um, but uh, the cool thing in the documentation, there was this great quote from Brian Kerrigan, uh, that I'd like to just go ahead and read, if that's okay with you guys, uh, where he described uh, logging in kind of a, a neat way that I've not heard it put before. Here's what he says. As a personal choice, we tend not to use debuggers beyond getting a stat trace or a value of a variable or two. One reason is that it's easy to get lost in the details of complicated data structures and control flow. We find stepping through a program less productive than thinking harder and adding output statements and self-checking code at critical places. Clicking over statements takes longer than scanning through the output of judiciously placed displays. It takes less time to decide where to put a print statement than to single step to the critical section of code, even assuming we know where that is. 
more important, debugging statements stay with the program. Debugging sessions are transient. I thought that was an interesting uh, kind of description that I've always seen there's like two kinds of programmers. There's uh, those that just love to throw in a put statement somewhere to debug something, and then there's those that fire up the debugger every time, you know, and I thought it was kind of interesting to hear somebody uh, kind of codify why they make one particular choice. I, too, fall in that camp, so. So you fall into the puts statement camp or the debugger camp? The put statement camp, yeah. I, I, I like, pretty much never use a debugger. The closest I get is, uh, you know, using something like pry or something to start an interactive session and, and uh, play a little bit. But I, I generally do that before I code, not when I find a problem. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I I thought it was interesting too because they, you know, it's not a put statement that you just pull right back out. It's actually a put statement. He almost implied that um, your put statements should stay with your code or, or the ones that are important, so that you know it's it's not just putting out debug output that you're going to take right back out because I mean ultimately then you're just instrumenting your code instead of you know stepping through it. Um, but rather, you know, you, you're getting information out of it that, you, that you're that you then going to need and keep in whatever logging format you're using. Right, and that's the cool thing about logging frameworks, right, is they let you control what levels uh, we're writing at. But maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves there. So um, Tim tells me there are lots of different layers to logging, right? Uh, so Tim, you want to tell us a little about that? The so I guess what you're referring to there is I mean starting out with the simplest logging framework you could come up with would be you know just putting puts everywhere in your program and I agree with James that it works fantastic to get an idea of how the control flow is going and to see oh I'm not making it into this branch so obviously this must be a nil value here and the first problem with that really simplistic approach is uh, what people have called scroll blindness. After a while, you know, if you just watch lines of output scrolling past you, thousands and thousands of lines, it becomes incredibly easy to miss that one error that you are hoping to see. Um, so I guess that's not necessarily the first level, but, you know, that's the naive starting point. And... This, the log4j framework, um, you know, came out of this desire. It's like, how are we going to solve this problem? And there, with grep, with grep, with grep, with grep. Oh, that's so sad. A grep can track a falcon on a cloudy day. <laughs> oh, this is true. Um, I do not think that word means what you think it means. So, uh, you know, but I mean, logging is expensive. I mean. How expensive is it to flush everything to standard out? You know, it's, you know, and after a while of just doing that over and over and over again, it's going to incur a lot of processing overhead. So, you know, if you're in a Rails application and you're like stepping through every, you know, action that a, you know, possible request could go through, it's going to become very costly after a while. And so these log4j guys sat around and thought, oh, you know, we need a way to control, you know, what comes out. And so we have our wonderful log levels of debug, warn, info, you know, all the standard ones there. Um, and that allows us, you know, in a very customized way to say, okay, I'm just going to ignore, you know, everything except for my warning messages. And but I want to when I want to go into debug, I can turn that knob down and say, show me everything. So, um. You uh, have a horse in this race now. Uh, you built a library called Logging, uh, which maybe isn't the best name in the world because it is kind of tough to Google. Yes. <laughs> but uh, tell us about the Logging Library. So the Logging Framework, uh, that came about way back in 2005 or 2006. I wanted to use Log4R which is, um, you know, pretty much a one-for-one -one implementation of the Log4j framework in Ruby. And unfortunately, it's a project that had been abandoned by its developer. And, you know, after, a, you know, some time of trying to contact him on the Ruby Talk mailing list, you know, I finally decided, if I'm going to move forward, I just need to fork this project. And that's the whole reason that logging came about. And the biggest goal of this 
logging framework is to separate the creation of these, you know, messages of note inside your program from how they actually get displayed to the user or where they go. Puts again is great, but now you've locked yourself in, you know, to everything is going to standard out. And there's no quick way to, you know, just twist a knob and say, I want all of this stuff to be persisted to a file now. So, you know, if you read through the log4j manual, you know, they talk about how you generate these log events and then you send them over to, you know, some sort of appender. And the appender, you know, decides, okay, I'm going to format this log message in this, in this fashion and then I'm going to write it to a file. And by doing this, then you can actually have multiple appenders so that you can log to a file, you can log to standard out, you can send your log messages out to syslog. And one of my favorites to do is to send um, all of my error messages to growl. So if I'm working on a Rails application and an error pops up, you know, I'll get a little growl notification right on my screen. So that's, you know, the major goal with this logging framework is to provide a developer with the flexibility to be able to see the log messages in the way that they need, you know, during development or during debug, but also using that exact same, you know, without changing any of your code, just by tweaking a few configuration files, put this into production and still have it run quickly and not have those log messages affect performance very much. Interesting. You know, they, they've told me that I'm a multiple offender. offender. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, it's, it's nice to know that you can put it in, in several different places. Um, I do wonder, though, I mean, how, how do you deal with, I mean, if you're putting it out to a growl or to a standard out or even to a log file, I mean, sometimes you, you get into, you still wind up getting into tail minus FL, where it's, you know, it's just scrolling so fast, you know, and so furious. Um, is there a way to separate your logs or to split things up so that only certain things go to certain places? Or you know, how, how do you manage that? The um, each object in your system can have its very own logger. With the logging with the logger class that comes with the Ruby standard library, you create one of these objects, and it's used globally through your entire application. And with the logging framework, um, each object in your application can have its very own logger that's defined by your object's class name. And to prevent the, you know, tail minus F scroll blindness, what you can do then is set to the debug level the specific class that you want to debug or a collection of classes that you want to debug. So every other class in your application now is logging, you know, is only going to show warning messages or higher. But just the one or two things you really care about at the moment, you can set to this debug level. And that definitely cuts down on the sheer volume of messages that are coming out. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when I was looking through the logging library uh, this morning and seeing what you've done there. So basically what you're saying is if I have my Rails application and I'm trying to figure out, you know, I'm getting some uh, error reports or something about some complex interactions user ha users have when they're subscribing or unsubscribing to things, then what I can do is I can actually go in there and change the logging level of my uh, subscriptions controller, say. And then that means that whenever the Rails application is doing something inside that subscriptions controller, then I'll get, you know, my debug level output with all my copious messages in there that help me find stuff. But the rest of the application can still function under its normal warning level or whatever. I thought that was very awesome. Yes. And, you know, even in a production rail system, you could see how that would be invaluable. You know, so you deploy this thing to production and you just tweak your configuration settings to say, you know, exactly, I just want to debug these one or two things. You'll have a minor performance impact, but nowhere near as much as, you know, everything is spitting out debug messages. So how do you feel about the global loggers? Are they are they wrong or are they a decent fallback or do you hate them or what? Um, it depends on what you need. I, you do the simplest thing you need until it no longer works for you. So if the core Ruby logger works great, you know, and that's really all you've ever had need for, 
then stick with that. Um, you know, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but I'll just throw this out there. One of the problems with the core Ruby logger is when people set it up in Rails applications, you know, I've gone into production apps so many times and seen 20 gig log files sitting there. And, you know, setting up a rolling file appender is probably one of the best things that you can do. And there are ways to do that with the core Ruby logger, but most people just don't in the context of a Rails application. So, yeah, I have nothing against it. It's, you know, use it until it doesn't do what you need it to do anymore. Well, I'll tell you, if you have a 20 gig log file and you try and grep on that sucker, yeah, you're going to find out real fast that uh, the rotating log is a good idea. It, yes, or when your machine comes to a grinding halt because you've run out of disk space, that also will get your attention. Yeah, or when you try and open it in your text editor and it says, uh, I can't put this whole thing in memory, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> All those things. So you were you were saying that the core Ruby logger uh, can be made to rotate, and I actually do know this. Uh, I have an intimate familiarity with that code because I had to change it once upon a time. And that's because I was uh, working with multiple processes. And in that case, uh, the core Ruby logger is not the greatest thing in the world when it does log rotation. Can you do you want to talk about maybe why that is? <laughs> um, yes. It's the problem of having your file descriptor snatched out from underneath you. And if you have two processes that are both writing to the same log file, you know, which can obviously happen, if one of them says, okay, it's time to rotate this log file either based on age or size, the other process won't know that this has happened and will happily continue writing to its old file descriptor. But unfortunately, that file descriptor is no longer connected to anything. So you're going to lose all of your log messages. Log to dev null. Sweet! <laughs> You know, it uh, that scales. You can write to DevNull all day long, and it will not impact your system. That is so true. If so. you want fast logging, DevNull is your friend. <laughs> uh, until you need your logs. Unfortunately, yes. it's yeah, slightly unhelpful. So, well, uh, there, there is, there is DevNull yeah. is web scale. It is web scale. Nice. It's the, the DevNull logging appender. There is nothing like it. Besides, I know something you don't know. DevNull is not left-handed. Nice. <laughs> So, Tim, how do you solve the multi-process logging problem in the right way? Okay. So this is going to get fairly technical, but... Um, wait, wait, wait. This is not a technical podcast. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, you know, the one way to solve it is just never roll your log files. Let it continually grow and grow and grow and stop your application and then manually roll roll the file and then start it up again. Um, obviously, that has its drawbacks in that you're going to forget to do it. So the proper way to do this is um, internal to your program, you can use shared file locks. So each time any process goes to log, it you know obtains a shared lock on the file, writes its log messages out, and then says, okay, have my rolling criteria been met? Is my file old enough or is it big enough? And if either of those are met, then a process, you know, the processes all fight until someone gets an exclusive lock on the file. And these are all uh, Unix level, you know, shared and exclusive locks. And the one who does get the exclusive lock goes ahead, rolls the file, and then continues to log again. So the next time each process wants to log, you know, it's going to say, oh, you know, my file descriptor has changed out from underneath me, so I need to reopen my log file. And that's all handled internally by the uh, rolling log file appender. So that leads me to another question then. If I have a really, really long log message, I mean, something that is going to actually take maybe even a second to log because I have some insane output or something, mm -hmm. is that going to block everybody else while they wait to log? Or is this usually handled in the background some way? The kernel, you know, this is the magic of the kernel. It will take care of this for you. Um, you know, it's not going to block the other processes because as you're writing to the log file, you have a shared lock. So the other processes can also obtain a shared lock and write to the log. Um, after that insanely huge log message gets written, someone's going to have to obtain an exclusive lock. And, you know, the kernel, you know, then all the processes will have to wait until that exclusive lock is released. 
So you should only have to wait while rotating log files, in other words. And um, the one of the traditional ways of rotating log files is, you know, just put a, a dot one, dot two, dot three, you know, on them to kind of signify that they're in sequence. And that does take a little while because you got to shift them down the line. Um, but I saw in, in uh, Tim's stuff today, he had an example in there where he showed how to do them by date. Uh, instead, and then if you're, you know, rotating your log file every day and you just rotate it to the date name of the day, then you won't have to do all that log file shifting, so it makes the rotation much faster. That is correct. And, you know, with that shifting there, it's uh, a file rename to shift one file to the next. And the rotation code is pretty smart where it does a uh, copy and then truncate. So your current log file is copied to a temporary file name and then it's truncated underneath. So, and basically what this does is it allows all the existing file descriptors to remain. So you don't have to worry about reopening a new file. You just continue writing to it. That's awesome. Um, some programs, uh, support, uh, a signal that you can send them to, uh, ask them to rotate their log files to basically refresh them. And that helps when you're using something like log rotate, but it's, uh, interesting that rails hasn't really picked up that idiom. No, and the logging framework that I have also does not support that idiom. I like using signals for a different trick. Um, when I set up an application, I will actually register a signal handle handler for the user1 signal. And what that will do is that will change all of my loggers to the debug level. So on a production system, I can just send a, you know, a user1 signal, and now I'm going to see all my debug output. And when I'm done with that, I just send the user one signal again, and it restores everything to its previous states. That is an awesome trick. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So I have another question related to logging, and it's not so much about like the structure technology behind the logs, but it's more about the implementation of the logging. So, for example, um, let's say that I have a class that I need to log some information about. Um, how do I balance um, putting enough information in versus putting too much information in. You know, I, I don't want to put in so little that, you know, it, it doesn't tell me what I need to know when I need to know it. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I, um, I put enough in, but don't, don't kind of go overboard on that. So where's the balance there? That is a hard question to answer. You know, generally, I look at the five standard log levels, you know, that the Ruby logger defines, you know, debug, info, warn, error, fatal. Um, you know, starting from the top and working down, I only send out fatal messages if I'm about to kill the Ruby process. You know, for example, you know, something critical has happened and my program can no longer carry out its you know, core functionality. You know, I'll log that in a fatal message and then send a system exit command and call it good. Um, you know, stepping down from there, an error is something, you know, bad has happened, but I can work around it. Uh, an example of this would be, you know, I can't make an HTTP connection to an upstream server or I can't connect to the database, but I can retry again in 30 seconds. Warnings, those are a little more ambiguous. Um, you know, gosh, I don't have anything good to say about that. Um, you can see where it kind of breaks down. You know, a warning is something like, you know, this error, you know, this problem has occurred or we're exceeding our bandwidth limits or, you know, I've had to throttle this user down because they're exceeding their API limits. Uh, informational messages are very handy just to let me know that my program is still running. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then debug are probably the most important ones, even though they're at the lowest level, because those are the messages to my future self to help me figure out why something is going wrong. You know, that's when I'm looking at something, trying to figure out, you know, why am I getting into this bad code branch? Why am I getting, you know, a nil object reference here? And those are the ones that you need to think about the most. You're overdoing it if you, every other line is a log message and you're underdoing it if you don't have any log messages inside your class. So those are my two guidelines there. So that leads me into another question then. Because um, it seems like active record logs to your development log like all the time. 
I mean, every time you you access the database, it logs the query and the result and its mother. And so I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm wondering. I mean, for me, it almost feels like they they sort of overdo it. I'm just wondering what you guys think. Is, do they overdo it? Is it too much? Is it too little? Is it about right? I I really like Dr. Burkard's logging because um, nine nine times out of ten, when I'm you know investigating some problem or something, it comes down to uh, what was what was sent to the database. You know what what question did I ask or how did I fetch these records or something like that. I, I think it's because it's such a pivotal backbone of a Rails project. You know what what query was sent that uh, that we almost have to have that information to be able to reason about what our application is doing. I would uh, concur with James. I really enjoy seeing the SQL queries that are generated. Um, That helps me understand, you know, if I've, you know, fat fingered an association or a relationship or, you know, especially with things like has many through and these, you know, deeply nested associations that can spring, come up in uh, rails applications. I guess I'm just generally, I don't know. I, I hate watching it like fly by, and you know, um, I have a couple of applications where it does some some work to uh, set some other things up uh, that require it to do some callbacks to the server. And so, a lot of times, I wind up scrolling back down through my log because it does what I'm interested in, and then it does all the other setup work through AJAX. And so, it, it kind of puts me off because it. it 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 makes it harder for me to find what I want to find. Well, a trick that you can do is have all of your um, active record logs go to a separate file. You can configure um, an active record base logger and set it to the debug level and attach an appender to just that one logger that opens up you know a database you know dot log file. So all of your active record things will end up there. And, you know, meanwhile, you could set, send informational active record log messages higher up the appender chain and, you know, see all of those in your standard log output. That makes a lot of sense. I'm going to name my custom logger Paul Bunyan. (laughs) So, Tim, you've talked a little about how there's uh, different appenders and, you can actually use them in tandem. So you can set up appenders to write to uh, standard out, a log file. Well, email. actually, I, I, can I interrupt that question? Sure. sure. You know, um, just regarding, you know, how much or how little, um, there is a sneaky little class inside of the logging framework called proxy. And you can wrapper any object inside of this logging proxy. And so it will then log all um, methods that are called on that object inside of your application. Interesting. So you can basically trace uh, interactions with a certain object, right? Exactly. And we find that uh, to be useful where I work, at least, when we are interacting with our Cassandra cluster and we want to track you know, all the different requests that are being made through the Thrift interface. Very cool. Well, I was actually going somewhere different with this, though. Um, oh, go ahead. You've talked about how you can use the, you know, different appenders like uh, in in tandem and stuff, so you can get messages to standard out and error messages in email or, or things like that. You send out your four fastest ships and see who gets there first. But, yes. Um, the, uh, the other thing I saw when I was looking through the logging framework is, um, you know, you have the layouts and stuff that get... Uh, work with each appender and that turns out to be kind of cool and just I mean you can do the typical logger things of you know colorize this message or format it this way but uh, what I was very interested to see was things like the JSON and YAML formats so you could actually have parsable logs those are wonderful and they do exactly what their name says. You know, each log messages, each log message will be, you know, a, a JSON object or dictionary if you want to use the JavaScript parlance. But yeah, and it's great for when you need to just need to just quickly uh, parse back through those log messages and find the information you're looking for. I have a kind of related question about uh, formatting. Um, so I think you you kind of. Um, 
you partially answered it, um, talking about um, YAML and stuff like that. But uh, I'm just curious if you've evolved any conventions. I mean, I mean, logs are freeform text. Um, have you involved any conventions for how you format your log statements? That is a fantastic question. And the only two rule of, rules of thumb, I would say, is never, ever, 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 for any reason whatsoever, ever, create your own date stamp format. Ever. Ever? Ever. Don't do it. Um, when you log, you know, date stamps or time stamps into your log files, you know, Unix seconds are horrible. You know, it's, you know, who knows if your Unix clock is set right. You have no idea what time zone you're in. You know, if you're logging from Java, are they seconds? Are they milliseconds? You know, it's, it's all very confusing. Uh, there's a great standard, you know, ISO 8601, which describes, you know, timestamp and date stamp formats. Um, the default, you know, and this is what the logging framework uses for its uh, default date format output. And it's basically year, month, day, hour, minutes, seconds, microseconds, and then a time zone after that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you look at the Apache logs and, you know, they have these very English-centric, you know, date stamps, you know, OCT610. And it's kind of like, okay, so October, if you're in an English-speaking country, and then is six the year or is that, you know, the day or is 10 the year? And just all these very confusing things. So that is my my one word of advice about date stamp formatting. The second part of that is I would format my log messages in order to help out whatever system is going to consume the log messages. You know, if it's a human, I'm not going to spit out a bunch of JSON. That's hard for a human being to parse. You know, I'll make a nice, pretty printed format. If it's a log analysis package or something like that, you know, for example, uh, Splunk is a, you know, fantastic piece of software that can, you know, rip through all your log files and give you very, very usable data out of them. And it really enjoys having key value pairs. So key, an equal sign, and then whatever the value is. And Splunk then allows you to search for all of your keys, plot graphs, if it's numeric data, things like that. Um, how about uh, new lines? Do you, uh, is it, do you ever put new lines in a, a log message or is that a no-no? Hmm. I do not have a strong preference. Uh, it just depends on what's going to be consuming those messages. And when I emit backtraces for a human readable log, I will do new lines with tabs. Okay. And one last, one last formatting question. Um, often I've, I found, uh, I found it useful to log, um, sort of a bracketed context. So, um, so log when I enter a particular context, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm doing a particular procedure or something and then log when I exit it. Um, and then that, then I can go in and I can look at exactly what happened in between those two markers. Um, do you have any kind of, did you ever like evolve a, a format? Uh, first of all, do you do this? And secondly, do you have any kind of like format for bracketing those that you can then easily go in and, and sort of pull out these, these, uh, con- contextual chunks? The logging proxy object will do just that. It'll mark, you know, I'm entering this method, now I'm exiting this method, and optionally it can spit out whatever the return value from the method is. So any log statements inside of that method or subsequent methods that it calls on down the stack, you know, will be bracketed by these nice enter and exit terms. I'm not precisely sure which format I'm dumping them out in, but yeah, that's a fantastic idea. I, I have one more tip that I've evolved over time and that I really enjoy uh, in my logs. And that's, I like to change the default. You know, it usually spits out like, uh, oh, the, you know, date and time, the level of the message, blah, blah, blah. And then the message after that. Uh, I, I like to add one more detail to that list of things that always gets spit out for every message. And that's the process ID. I find that absolutely invaluable, especially when working with a multi-process application like Rails that's generally I'm running, you know, three, five copies of so that I can tell, oh, this is that one guy doing his stuff and this is that other guy doing his stuff. And that is a fantastic idea. Um, 
One thing that I've not really gotten a good grip around, especially in the context of a Rails application, is how do you identify all the log messages associated with a single request to your web server? And I mean, that's hard because it's either going to be, you know, if you have multiple processes all logging to the same file, you're going to end up with interleaved log messages between, you know, two separate requests coming in on two different servers. So any thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's it's really tough in the, um, in you know just basic Rails. I, I think you would almost have to split out the log files by process ID to to realistically achieve something like that. And then if you're doing anything like uh, you know anything like evented with say thin or something, then you're still going to have issues with that. So. One of the, my constant frustrations with, you know, trying to use a unified logging framework in an application is whenever I have to pull in third-party code. And these, you know, for example, SAS is a wonderful, I love it to death, it makes my style sheets so much easier to use. Um, it can be used from the command line, and because of this, it has its own you know, set of logging instrumentation inside of it. <clears throat> and if I'm debugging a Rails application, I really want to be able to see you know, my output from SAS. But SAS doesn't necessarily agree with the way that I want to do things. And it becomes very, very painful you know, to bring together a bunch of different libraries which have different ideas about how logging should be done. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like a lot of things even seem to, Sphinx comes to mind, uh, you know, starts up its own log files and just basically completely ignores what you're doing. Yeah, you know, and going back towards the beginning of the conversation, you know, about the uh, standard library logger class, you know, I think it's great. But, you know, if everybody's spinning up their own loggers, it can lead to a bit of mayhem inside of there. Um in Java land, they have this horribly named thing called SLF4J. And it's, of course, it's an acronym. And I think it's, um, I can't remember what the S stands for, but it's a logging, a system-wide logging factory for Java. And the concept here is that all your various Java jar files say, I am going to obtain my loggers by using this factory gem. And then you as the application writer can go in and configure the factory gem to provide everyone with, the, with your logger of choice. Unfortunately, there's nothing like that out in Ruby land. And it'd be simple enough to write, but the biggest barrier to entry there would be uh, getting community-wide adoption of such a creature. Right. Yeah, it doesn't really work unless everybody's using it. Exactly. You know, and so I don't know. Thoughts on that one? I mean, how do you how do you convince everybody? You know, use use this gem for your factory stuff. You know, it will make life easier. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think things like that are harder to do in Ruby, where we're you know uh, a lot less corporate-y and enterprisey and and things like that. I think those those kind of initiatives are tougher to push on us. I'm not sure if that's a feature or not. <laughs> it's the hurting cats that's that's the hard part there right you know i mean i would i would certainly love to see something like that come into play um because as gem developers you know you definitely need you know some sort of logging facility but as soon as you choose one now you've imposed that decision on everyone who uses your gem and that might be very different than what a particular application needs. So it's, it's something that needs to get figured out. It's, it, you know, we've seen that it's um, possible for the Ruby community to kind of settle on, on certain types of, of utilities. I mean, uh, Rack um, is kind of the de facto standard for, for building web apps these days. Bundler seems to be gaining ground as far as how to how to specify your dependencies. And everybody writes their their project scripts, or most everybody writes their project scripts using using Rake. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I, I think you know with a sufficiently general and simple tool um, that you know and some awareness, um, you know, maybe we could see more 
more of these uh, libraries just using something that already exists um, instead of rolling their own. You know, that would be you know definitely a wonderful thing to see. Um, yes. So we we actually we can take our first live Twitter question on the air. Somebody asked, "Where should I log to? Flat file, database, Twitter, etc." I'm partial to Twitter myself. Um, but Wait a second. This is this is going out live. I, well, we actually Abdi asked for questions on Twitter, and oh, okay. we got we got a response. So um, somebody wanted to know where to log to, and uh, so to kind of tie that in with. Uh, um, something I saw in logging this morning, there is a syslog appender. Could you maybe talk about why you might use the syslog appender sometime? At work, um, we use the syslog appender because that is the only way to get information into our Splunk platform. So the way it works, you know, syslog aggregates everything, you know, down to one machine and then Splunk parses the log files on disk and provides you a very nice view into it. Um, there are a few shortcomings with syslog. Uh, number one, I, I think you're limited to 1,024 bytes for your message size. So if you want to log, you know, in a single message, you know, vast quantities of data, syslog is not your answer. Um, the other problem is there's a bit of an impedance mismatch between syslog and the core Ruby logger. Um, the core Ruby logger has five levels, and I believe syslog defines up to, oh, I'm going to, someone can correct me later, but I think it's 11. I mean, there's a trace, a debug, you know, you know, a fatal, and an, oh my God, what just happened level, and things like that. Um, so the way you get around that is you provide a mapping where, you know, the level, you know, a debug level in Rubyland would map to a syslog debug, you know, a fatal in Rubyland would, you know, map to the highest syslog level there. Um, and yeah, we use it to great benefit. It works very, very well. Let me fire one more question since we have Tim on. Um, <laughs> Tim, you've done other things than just logging. What about, uh, you want to talk about any of your other projects? Maybe Mr. Bones, ServoLux, Directory Watcher? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think ServoLux is a good example of a project that, you know, needs to incorporate some sort of logging mechanism into it. So ServoLux is a more Googleable name that I came up with after my debacle with the logging library. And the whole goal of this project is to provide a cohesive set of tools for creating um, server-type processes in Ruby and provides things to spawn off children and communicate with those children via a pipe. Um, it provides a threaded module that you can include into any object, and it will provide you with a thread of control inside that object. And all you have to define is a run method, and it provides you a way to gracefully start and stop that thread. And all of these things build together until you end up with a, you know, at the very top level you have a ServoLux server class, which you can use you know, to spin up a server process that can handle signals. And alongside of that server class, you also have a ServoLux daemon class, which can then daemonize those servers or any other command you send to it. And the way logging ties into this is during a daemonization process, you need to make sure that your server started up correctly and is running. And so one trick that I'll do there is after all the server initialization has you know, spun itself up, connected to databases, and started processing, I'll output you know, a single line message into the log file that says, I'm running. And the parent process that spawned off this daemon, you know, it you know, does the two-fork you know, drop process leader magic that is the Unix recipe for forking. And this daemonizer sits out there and, you know, looks to see that the child PID is still running, and then it starts tailing the log file looking for that one message of I'm running. And when it sees that, it says, okay, everything's good. I can go away now and let the daemonized process continue on. So, you know, the hard part is, you know, I didn't want to uh, confine anyone 
who wants to use the ServoLux gem into using the, necessarily using the logging framework. So the trick there is using dependency injection. When you spin up your server, you have to pass to it a logger instance. And you know we talked earlier about how do you you know about SLF for J and Java land. You know another way of doing this is just everybody when they create a gem says I'm not going to create my logger. I'm going to let someone pass you know their logger to me. Um, yeah, that was a bit of rambling. <laughs> I just want to say that Servalux is awesome. Uh, <laughs> and, and if if you're not, I mean, if you have, if you're doing anything involving managing processes or creating demons or having pools of processes or anything, anything like that in Ruby, and you've outgrown the built-in um, process facilities, which is pretty easy to do, uh, you should be using Servalux. I've been using it for years. Um, and, and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's like the Bentley or the Escalade of, of process management. <laughs> well, yeah, that and the name is amazing, right? I mean, it's second to maybe only ROUSs. <laughs> I don't believe they exist. Yes. So. Yeah. All right. Well, that's really cool. I'm going to have to check that out. All right. Well, let's get into the picks. Um, Opti, go ahead. All righty. Picks for today. Um, First up um, is a little service called Repelit. Uh, that's that's R E P L dot I T. And uh, if you've ever gone to one of these sites like Try Ruby, where you can type in live code and 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 at a at a Repel and see what it what it evaluates to, this is kind of like that, only for like every language. Um, and it's 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 kind of amazing that this even exists and works. Um, and, uh, it's got like fourth and Python and Ruby and Lua and scheme and JavaScript, et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, secondly, um, something I've been using a bunch lately is screener, uh, screen R, which, uh, it's a service for making screencasts and, um, it's, uh, it just makes, Makes uh, creating quick screencasts dead simple, and uh, it takes all the like the the fiddly bits of of like uh, encoding and uploading and and hosting somewhere and and um, and giving people a playback widget and and all that. So I've been using it with my client work, um, just doing like daily screencasts of of progress, so they can see exactly how things are going, and if they want to say, "Oh no, that's not what I had in mind," um, uh, do it this way instead. Um, it, uh, it works really, really well. Um, and the, ama- the really amazing thing about it is that, um, it's completely cross-platform. It launches from a web page. It's p- cross-platform. It even works on Linux. Um, and, uh, so yeah, really happy with that service. I like that even works on Linux. That's amazing. All right, James, go ahead. Okay. So, uh, let's see my picks for this week. If only I had a Holocaust cloak. Um, all right, let's do, uh, I'm a big podcast guy, hot shocker. Uh, I love listening to podcasts and I've mentioned some I enjoy, uh, in the past. I'm going to give you two, uh, that have really been eating up all my listening time lately. And that's, um, Freakonomics Radio is the podcast side. They have a blog and everything, but, uh, and I'm sure most people have probably heard of the books, uh, Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. Uh, absolutely excellent podcast. I think it actually gets better as it goes. And uh, uh, they had a recent episode on quitting and, uh, you know, why people do it, how they do it, is it good for you kind of stuff. Um, uh, Hitchhiking, I mean, it's just everything. They look into everything. It's totally interesting. Uh, The parenting episodes is one of my favorite, uh, uh, one of my favorite of all times. Really good show. So, can't recommend Freakonomics enough, uh, and definitely read the books. They're they're great as well. Um, so uh, Freakonomics, it's interesting stuff. The other one I've been listening to is Radio Lab, uh, and Radio Lab was a little longer for me to get into, to be honest, because uh, I really enjoy science podcasts, uh, but I tend to listen to uh, science podcasts that are uh, more on the answers side of the equation than the questions side of the equation, which I think is where Radiolab sits. Um, but the interesting thing about Radiolab is they're very good at telling a story and uh, weaving a picture together. So it's it's almost like uh, This American Life uh, with kind of soft science content. 
uh, and it's pretty interesting stuff. And if you do decide to listen to Radiolab, do yourself a favor and put some headphones on while you do it. They, um, they do some very interesting things with sound in that podcast uh, that uh, are super neat to listen to uh, and a lot of times uh, will kind of surprise you. And they, they talk about those as they go, but uh, it's, it's really neat to just experience them. So uh, I, I recommend Radiolab with headphones. Those are the two things I've been listening to lately, so hopefully other people find them interesting. Plus one for Freakonomics Radio. This is a great podcast. I haven't read the books, but the podcast is it's always fascinating. Um, Tim? My first pick this week would be an Apache incubator project called Kafka. And this is a fantastic piece of software uh, akin to... Um, Oh, Facebook's Scribe platform or Cloudera's Flume. It's a distributed uh, publish subscribe messaging system and it can handle about 50 megabytes per second of data on a single node. Um, we are, you know, starting to look into this at where I work for, you know, aggregating log data to a single location and also for just general pub sub needs. So it looks very promising. My second pick this week would be for um, community and just thanking people for the contributions they make. Um, a few months ago, someone wrote me a kind word through GitHub's you know, messaging system just saying, thank you so much for the logging framework. You know, I think it's a really good thing. And that just, you know, I, I go back about once a week and just read that you know, as kind of the inspiration to keep going with open source things, you know, just knowing that someone's using your software and is thankful that you wrote it. And... You know, I've been trying to apply this more in my life. So I just, you know, go through my list of installed gems once a week. I pick a gem and I just write a little note to the author just saying, hey, thanks for writing this. I use it and it makes my life better as a developer. Well, thank you, Tim, for writing the logging framework and the other things. Oh, stop. <laughs> yes, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Avdi. Thank you, James. Thank you, listeners. Thank, thank you, world. Thank you, Chuck, for hosting the Ruby Rogues. Yes, we need yeah. to hear Chuck's picks. Oh, my picks. Oh, it's my turn? Yes, it's your turn now. Now, where did I put those picks? I think I left them with the albino. <laughs> anyway, um, so my first pick, and, and I have to back this up with a little bit of a story. I've been working with a client to try and get Canvas and Structure installed, and he insisted initially on putting it on FreeBSD. And uh, I am not a big FreeBSD person. In fact, that was probably the first time that I'd used it for more than 10 minutes. And so I was stuck in corn shell land, and um, I had to figure out how to install these packages and stuff. And so my pick this week is Bash and Linux. Um, and really what it comes down to, it's not so much a knock on FreeBSD or on the corn shell or anything else, but it really just comes down to knowing your tools and knowing how to use them. Uh, because honestly, uh, knowing uh, it, it could have been just about any distribution of Linux. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with quite a few of them. And, um, so my, it, it, as you get to know your operating system, you get to know bash and what it's capable of and what you can do with it. Uh, get to know some of the command line tools that are in there. Uh, you really find out that you have some powerful, powerful things at your, uh, at your fingertips that you can use to get the job done. And uh, if you're in a foreign environment, one that you're not as familiar with, um, and I used to support Windows, and now that's even becoming foreign in a lot of ways because I'm not as familiar with the newer versions. Um, but knowing your tool, knowing what you can do with it is, is really a great thing. And so um, I guess my pick is knowing your tools, but really uh, Linux and Bash just for me are kind of the, the way to go. And um, that the, the, that's pretty much it. That's all I've got. So uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I want to thank Tim again for coming onto the podcast. Um, I'm not joking around with that. I, we, we all really appreciate it and appreciate his expertise. Um, on our panel, we also had Avdi Grimm. Have fun storming the castle. James Edward Gray. As you wish. Tim, do you have anything else to add? Do you think it'll work? It'll probably take a miracle. Bye-bye. <laughs> And I'm Charles Maxwood. Uh, I'm on the, the Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. That's it. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>